So, um, yeah, as I was thinking about what to talk about, I, I do want to, I'm going to be drawing some of this is, you know, coming from the book Ev was talking about called Embodied Hope. But in this Advent season, you know, and you guys have been talking about hope for a while, um, as you know, and, you know, you, you you all have been in the church for a while, you've lived life for a while, uh, you know, Christmas, this season is both wonderful and kind of painful. Uh, a lot of mourning happens, a lot of struggle. Um, and one of the things when I think about hope, uh, it's often, you know, it's it's interesting. It's been said that hope is a, is a particularly peculiar, there was a philosopher in the early 20th century made the argument that hope was actually a peculiar Christian virtue. I think, I think it's a very interesting argument. I, I don't have time to kind of unpack that here, but I think that's interesting. Um, but but in the midst of this kind of setting, I, I want to think through this because hope is often in contrast to the lack of hope. And um, this is a time of year where people mourn the loss of loved ones. Um, but also often... Um, it's it gets associated with we we feel our own physical challenges and weaknesses and um and so I want to use I actually want to spend most of our time talking about faith and you'll see how I think it's related to hope and to love uh, I really I'm gonna just so you kind of get a sense of things I'm gonna use our time to really do kind of a meditation on Paul's statement about faith hope and love and um. And I'm going to emphasize faith in order to orient the other two, as you'll see. Um, but so so I want to think about suffering, not just generically, though, because that that can feel too abstract. I'm going to be we're going to be focusing on physical suffering. Um, and part of it's personal, part of it's theological. I really think um, as we are in Advent and think about the eternal son of God becoming human and really entering into weakness and pain and suffering i think that is pretty profound and it's amazing to me how often when christians have wrestled with the problem of suffering we ended up doing philosophical discussions like how can god be in control of everything and bad things happen and why doesn't he stop them and all that but that's very abstract and when actually the christian understanding of suffering and making sense of it is kind of looks like looking into the eyes of a bleeding and weeping savior on a cross and that's a very different way to approach suffering rather than just philosophically, abstractly. So that's some background. I, I, so all I have to say, we're going to talk about faith, hope, and love, and we're going to use physical suffering as the lens to make sense of it. But I hope you'll see that maybe your story or people you love, it's not it's not so much physical suffering. Maybe it's maybe it's mourning the loss of own. Maybe it's mental health. Maybe it's uh, other kind of things. But I really want to think through these things in a more communal way, and you'll see what I mean to begin. But with that, uh, before I really launch, I, I will just give you a very brief, it's not going to be biographical so much except for this, because when you start to talk about hope and faith and love in, the, in terms of suffering, um, I just want to tell you enough to say this isn't hypothetical for us, um, for me and my family. So the short version is in 2008, um, my wife, we got married in 1993, but in 2008, uh, she got cancer. We had uh, we were married nine years before we had kids. So at the time, we had two little kids, three and five-year-old. And long story short, after a year of surgeries and things, she ended up being declared cancer-free in 2009, and praise God. And we thought that was really hard. 
but you kept us and you know that and now we can now we can move on and uh in 2010 my wife called me from the side of the road uh on a work thing um she was doing international relief and rehabilitation work after the haiti earthquake and basically just said i don't know if i can make it home my you know my my legs not working properly and again to make a long story short from the summer of 2010 to this day there hasn't been a day that hasn't had pain and fatigue, pretty serious pain and fatigue for my wife. And it took us six years to get to the Mayo Clinic and get diagnoses and all of that. But that just remains our reality. So I only say that to say, I don't know what your stories are and the stories of people you love are. But if we're going to talk about faith and hope and love in terms of physical suffering and thinking about the incarnation, then I just want you to know this is not hypothetical or merely academic to me. So, all right. With all that said, um, Let's let's jump in. I actually think in the midst of suffering, in the midst of mourning, in the midst of struggle, one of the things that we're tempted to is to really just what what should we think about God? Some of you may remember, probably for, for most of you here, it's like remember reading to your children or something. But remember Stephen Crane? He wrote Red Badge of Courage. Um, I don't know if you remember that American author, but he also wrote poems and I want to, I, I, I memorized this poem decades ago. Uh, and so I want to impress you by telling you this, but actually because well, just listen to it. So here's, here's Stephen Crane's poem. A man said to the universe, sir, I exist. And the, and the universe replied, the fact is not created in me a sense of obligation. That's, that's, you know, a man says to the universe, sir, I exist. And the universe says, that doesn't create any obligation in me. And I, and I think that's interesting because that, that showed this sense of how do you live in a world where there's no God who cares? But interestingly enough, I think for Christians, it may be even worse because we're not just speaking to a vague universe. You, cry, you and I cry out to the God of Abraham and Isaac, of Mary and Paul. And we're actually wondering, where are you? You're supposed to be our God. You're supposed to be a God who makes promises, a God who is present. Um, so so what does that look like? And some of you may know uh, the 20th century thinker, De Horte Sola, in a book on suffering. And she talks about this. And she said, you know, some of you, the way you think about God and him being sovereign, maybe you're just into kind of what she called theological sadism, right? Uh and at one point, she says this quote, she says, affliction has the intention of bringing us back to a God who only becomes great when we become small. In other words, is our view of God that God likes to just inflict pain and suffering because when we're made really, really small and we suffer, then we're like, OK, God's great. As if God has some kind of dysfunctional need to squish us in order for him to be made wonderful. You see the problem with that? Now, obviously, I don't hold that view, but these are real things. And in the 17th century, there was a Puritan named John Owen, and he talked about having hard, what he called hard thoughts about God. And part of what I found really interesting about what Owen says in the same kind of way is he doesn't mean by hard thoughts, he doesn't mean asking the hard questions like, where are you, God? Why is this happening? None of that. When Owen warns us against what he warns Christians against this temptation of having hard thoughts about God, what he means is actually something different. He means 
the temptation to think that God is tyrannical. The temptation to think that God is basically demonic. You know, I teach in an undergrad college and sometimes I'll ask, you know, students, if if God is all powerful, we use these omni words like omnipotent. Is that a good thing? Well, it's actually not a good thing unless he's also a good God, right? You could have a demonic deity with all the power who's not good, who's not wise, who's not compassionate and kind. Um, but Owen gets to something because it can be because of childhood experiences. It could be because of some particular kinds of preaching. It can be, you know, family experiences, whatever. But for many of us, we have been tempted and shaped to think about God as kind of a brutish or like an, a father who's just distant and just quick to kind of, I don't know, be the mad scientist or something like that. And what Owen is trying to get at is when we have these hard thoughts about God and we think he's cruel, when we think he's disengaged, when we think he's a mad scientist, the last thing you're going to do is draw near to him in your need. And so that's what I want to do. That's why I want to concentrate on faith, because if you're going to have hope, it's got to be hope in something or someone. And that that becomes key. So what is this someone like? How should we think about that? So that's just kind of get us thinking. Let's talk now about faith. Many of you know uh, in Mark chapter 9, where you get the famous line, I believe, you know, help my unbelief to the man encountering Jesus. And I really want to draw from the great reformer Martin Luther in the 16th century, because I think his understanding of faith is, many people know he believed in faith, you know, justification by faith alone. But I want to show you some sides of his view of faith that are really rich and textured and not always appreciated. Right. So and and it really comes through when Luther deals with suffering and sickness and men in physical kind of challenges. One of the things that Luther understood was that, you know, we deal with a lot of sickness and health and suffering in our day. Well, as you know, 16th century, despite our romanticized vision, it's terrible. Right. People are sick all the time. It's super bad. Um, those kind of things. But one of the things that Luther understood even then was when you're dealing with serious pain, whether it's chronic or acute, the more you deal with pain and suffering, the narrower your world gets, right? It's It gets narrower. Um, it's kind of like if, if you're having a bad toothache and someone's like, you know, you should just spend some time praying. <laughs> Isn't it kind of hard to concentrate and to pray when you're just in pain? Right. It sounds very spiritual and good, but it's kind of naive. Right. Well, so Luther trying to think through the reality of pain and suffering in light of these kind of things, realized when you are going through pain and suffering, it's kind of like a sailor on a ship. When you're a sailor on a ship in a terrible storm, you need all hands on deck. Everybody needs to come and help. You're not you're not dividing it in these kind of ways. You know, it, it's it's that kind of reality. And so Luther had some experiences where he actually thought he was on the verge of death. And part of what he discovered was just how dependent he was on other people. Right. Where other people needed to come alongside him um, to help him understand what God is like to help believe for him. And that and that I want to explain that. So let me let me give you a couple stories from Luther. This will be fun. So in 1527, 1527, 
he wrote Melanchthon. Maybe some of you have heard of Melanchthon. It was kind of Luther's right-hand uh, person. And, he, and this is part of his letter. This is all, all the things I'm going to be sharing to you are from his letters, which when we've had uh, one summer when it was really bad for us, I found great refuge in his letters. But Luther wrote to Melanchthon and he said that he was, quote, terribly ill and in death and hell. Right. He's, that's how he's describing his situation. And then later he adds this. He said, I am almost I almost lost Christ in the waves and the blasts of despair and blasphemy against God. Now watch it. So Luther's like, I, I almost lost Christ, tempted to blasphemy. And when he says blasphemy, he means to like say cruel things like, God, you're a demon. God, you're terrible. God, you're 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 not faithful, that kind of stuff. And then he says, um, but God was moved by the prayers of saints and began to take pity on me and rescued my soul from the lowest hell. Now, what's interesting to me about that is basically Luther's in despair and he starts to realize it takes the prayers of other saints to sustain him, to nourish him. A little later, he writes to Nicholas Hausman, right, on a different occasion. And this time, it wasn't his own pain and suffering, but the plague, many of you know how the plague would go around in this time. And it went around and it was coming into a city and his son Hans had it. And he was malnourished and ill and he seemed like he might die. And Luther in the midst of it, now it's not his suffering, it's his son's suffering. And in the midst of that, he talked about what he called his restlessness and faint heartedness. And when he, and this I think becomes important, when he's asking his friends to pray for him, he asked them that they would pray, and this is a quote, that my faith fail not. That my faith fail not. I think one of the things when we're in pain, when we're struggling to doubt, when it's very hard to hope, we all tend to pray for the physical healing, for situations to change. All of that's good and right. But I think Luther's insight here is especially when you're talking about this time of year, people dealing with chronic pain or the loss of someone, pray that their faith wouldn't fail. And by that, he means pray that you would believe that God is actually good and kind when everything in you makes you wonder if that's actually true. Maybe God is distant, unconcerned, or, or worse. Maybe he's cruel, right? And, and Luther understood that the underlying problem for him was always a battle of faith. One Luther scholar once said, he said, the central problem for Luther remains the problem of God. Isn't that interesting? The problem of God, right? And what he called God's hiddenness. Yeah, like, is God cruel or is he kind? Is he welcoming or, or is something else going on? Is he really loving? And can I worship him and love him or do I just, am I just to be afraid of him, right? And Luther struggle with that and that brings me to then this other side of faith where luther would talk about spiritual depression or what we would call spiritual depression which would often be combined where you're getting suffering and pain and it brings doubts and struggles and and what we might classify as spiritual depression so one more story here he's he, justice joan um who was another dear one uh to him he he called him over because everyone thought his wife thought that luther was going to die and so he shows up and we know about this because afterwards that night justice joan went home and wrote about it 
But he gets there and Luther, people think he's going to die. And, and Luther's kind of, his response is to beg justice to splash him with water. In other words, he wants some physical help. But he also begs him to earnestly pray for him. And, and it doesn't say he went person to person, but we do know he asked everyone there to pray for him. And, and you get this sense, it's almost like he's grabbing them, like, please pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, right? And so it would move um, between this kind of, he would recite the Psalms and pray and beg people to pray for him. And Luther doesn't end up dying, which is great. But part of what's interesting is when he reflects on that later, he says that basically his spiritual trial that day was much worse than the physical one. It was brought on by all the pain and suffering, but it really was making him question what God was like, what the faith was like, what he was, and, and all of that relates to, to hope. I told you one last story, but I have one more from Luther and then we'll move on. But um, he writes to Gerhard Vilskep, another uh, friend in 1528. And, and, there's this wonderful quote in this this letter that I so he's talking about how his pain was really bad and if I gave you the list of his pain it, it's it's pretty gross <laughs> but it's it's a long list of things he he dealt with his whole life so anyways at one time as he's writing him in his precarious situation at this time Luther says this he says so far Christ has triumphed but he holds me by a very slender thread. Holds me by a slender thread. And then later he says, and this is so insightful, I have saved others, myself I cannot save. I've saved others, myself I cannot save. Now, I think that can sound terrible to people. Like, who does Luther think he is? He's saving people. But I, like Kevin will get this. Like, I really think what he means, and I think all of us can relate to this, when you're sharing about God's kindness and his love and the gospel and the good news, like as a professor and, and as, you know, as a leader in my church, when I share, I really do mean these things when I tell them to people in counseling sessions and other things. I mean it with all my heart. But when I look in the mirror and try and tell it to myself, it means almost nothing. Right? If I, I really mean it when I tell someone God loves you. But if I look in the mirror and say, Kelly, God loves you, I'm like, yeah. You're not a trustworthy person to listen. You know what I mean? We all, and Luther understand understood something profoundly, uh, a profound psychological insight here that we need other people in the body of Christ to tell us these truths. There's something that happens. You can't just tell, and in the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer picks, on the, picks up on this. You can't just tell yourself. You need other people to speak into your life to help, right? Um, and I think Luther really understood a communal nature of faith. One of the things that's common nowadays is people blame the Reformation for being overly individualistic. And there's something to that. But I think this is an example when you actually explore Luther on faith. He did believe in justification by faith, but he actually thought of faith in far more communal terms than we tend to realize that we really do need the body of Christ. And so when we deal with worries about, say, divine apathy or judgment or abandonment, I think only when we're with other believers can we honestly kind of face 
and answer those doubts, those struggles. Because I do think alone, the flame of faith diminishes, but in community, I do think the fire of faith kind of can illumine the night. And there's something about that dynamic of where we need one another. So I won't spend that much time, as much time on hope and love, but that's the background is faith is key, but then we need to think about how it relates to the others. So hope, I think, is really fascinating because Christian faith is not merely believing that God exists, right? John Calvin, and you'll see faith and hope again connected. John Calvin, the reformer, had this wonderful definition of faith. Don't need to write it down, but listen to what he said, because I want to unpack some of this. Calvin said, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our hearts and sealed upon our both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts to the Holy Spirit. All right, so what is it? What is he actually saying there? It's fascinating. Faith is not believing that God exists. That's that's Kinderspiel. That's like easy, right? You don't need anybody can believe that there's a deity. You want to know what's really hard? Calvin gets it. What's really hard is believing that God is benevolent toward you, right? To believe that God is kind, that you to believe like sisters and brothers in the Ukraine right now, as the bombs hit, when you have, you know, if you've just lost a child, if, if, if there is a storm, when, when the, when the reality of pain and suffering all around you, it takes faith to believe that God is benevolent toward us. And part of what's so brilliant about what Calvin is getting at when he's talking about faith and as it's related to hope is you're not going to have faith and hope if you're trying to base it on your empirical circumstances, right? Because sometimes they're good, but again, lots of times they're not. Suffering and pain and persecution and difficulty is part of life in this fallen world. So why Calvin's a good theologian is he said, faith is a firm and certain knowledge in God's benevolence toward us. So where do you get it? And he says, it's founded upon Christ right? When you have been abused, where do you believe that God is benevolent? Well, you look to a bleeding and weeping Savior on a cross. And there all of a sudden, you have a foundation that's not dependent on your circumstances. And the love and the love of in Christ's eyes, that is the foundation, the very coming, the very purpose of Advent, that God comes, Emmanuel, that he comes and enters into our to our brokenness, to our suffering, ultimately on the cross. Now you can build hope on that in a way that if you try and build your hope on how things are going around you, it's very flimsy. It doesn't last. It's it's very um, difficult. So let me put this together in a way that I think I think can make a long conversation short. Because I'm trying to help you see these in terms of communal realities. I think we can and should, in a sense, believe for each other or have faith for each other. And I think we hope and have love. And here's how it works. When we are suffering, we believe for each other. And what that looks like most commonly is that we pray to God on behalf of that person. What I mean by that is we have faith for them because we represent them to God. When you're suffering, it's very hard to pray. 
but others can pray for you. And in that way, they represent us to God. Now, interestingly, when you deal with hope, when things are hard, it's very hard to hope, isn't it? It's very hard to just take the promises of God, say, yes, all things work together for good. It's very hard to hope. So interestingly, I think it what hope does is hope, the why we need community is hope means that brothers and sisters can be Christ to us. So in faith, they represent us to God, and in hope, they represent God to us. Because God can feel distant, but all of a sudden with hope in the in the life of the church, hope is embodied with a real human being giving you a hug, weeping with you, being silent with you, um, or being willing to wrestle and honestly work through things, you know, that kind of thing. So hope is not so much, you know, some of you, I don't know if any of you watched Happy Gilmore, terrible movie some years ago. Probably Kevin saw it, right? <laughs> but anyways, um, the character in the, in the it's like a golf comedy thing. And he's like, be the ball, be the ball. Well, honestly, I think sometimes instead of like quoting Bible verses, we need to be the verse for people. That's what hope looks like. Like, don't just tell people God loves them, but you embody that. And in that way, you are embodying God's hope, you know, for them. And that then brings us to love because love is what brings these things together. Um, because without, without love, faith and hope can actually become cruel in a weird kind of way that I've seen, right? Uh, hope isn't achieved through the power of positive thinking, but through word and sacrament. Hope, uh, comes to us in these kind of ways. But if you have faith without love, it often becomes abusive. What I mean by that, it's, it's kind of like, um, Faith without love is kind of like sending an abused person back into an abusive situation without protection. It's saying, don't worry, it's all going to be fine. God, and not understanding the reality. No, no, no. Or faith is like, you just need to believe more, right? No, no, no. Faith makes sense only in the context of love, right? Um, similarly, hope. Hope without love gets, it's like an impersonal axiom, right? It It doesn't, it, it can also be kind of, it, it turns into kind of insensitive activism. Well, here's what you got to do, right? You know, we've dealt with chronic pain for almost 15 years now, and I can't tell you how many, and it's often well-meaning, but how many lists of things people have told us to do, right? Whether it's different diets and different things or watch different videos and they mean well, but it, it becomes like, well, if you if you just do this and without meaning to, what they're trying to do is give hope, but actually it just becomes a to-do list and it kind of becomes insensitive and cruel. So in order to really embody hope, you have to, it's got to be in the context of genuine love and presence, right? So um, you, faith and hope are key, but it's always got to be in the context of love. Otherwise, you undermine both faith and hope. Nicholas Walterstorff has this um, wonderful book on lament. Um, he lost his uh, grown son to a mountain climbing accident um, in his 20, late 20s. And um, I just want to read you a couple sentences from this about suffering um, and love that I think is powerful. He says, suffering is a mystery as deep as any in our existence. It is not, of course, a mystery whose reality some doubt. Suffering keeps its face hid from each while making itself known to all. We are all one in suffering. 
Some are wealthy, some bright, some athletic, some admired, but we all suffer for we all prize and love. And in this present existence of ours, prizing and loving yield suffering. Love in our world is a suffering love. This, said Jesus, is the command of the Holy One. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In commanding us to love, Jesus invites us to suffer. I think that's very powerful, right? It's kind of like the C.S. Lewis thing. Like, I know I, I can provide a way for you to no longer ever suffer. And that's just to stop loving, <laughs> right? If you if you put your heart and make it into a heart of stone and put it in a box, it won't get hurt anymore. But then it's just going to be a stone heart, right? It's not going to beat. It's not going to pulsate. So um, there is something about this. And, and, and God's economy, he expresses his love. He extends his comfort normally through the agency of people. We enter into one another. Not only are we united to Christ by the Spirit, but we're united to each other. One more Luther quote. He said, when we feel pain, when we suffer, when we die, let us turn to this, firmly believing and certain that we are not alone, but Christ and his church who are in pain, but Christ and the church who are in pain and suffering and dying with us. Right? We are in this as one body of Christ um, together. The last thing I would say, and then we can just talk about whatever you want to, is over Advent, if you want to think about faith, hope, and love, and, and try and think through these things together, I would encourage you, I think the three biblical images that are worth really meditating on in terms of Christ um, really are, um, well, yeah, I, cross, resurrection, and feast. Cross, resurrection, and feast. And each of those would be worth unpacking. Um, but rather than unpacking them now, I just want to read you one quote that my wife wrote. Because when I wrote about this, and before it got published, in the side, because she's my final editor often, and in the side margin, she wrote this. And I was like, that is better than everything I wrote. I wish I, you know, so I included in the book, but forget everything I wrote. If you just listen to this, is this is what she said. So this is from Tabitha. She said, suffering can be like a famine, a famine of comfort and peace, a famine of joy and health, a famine of community and self-worth. To this famine, Christ offers the feast of himself. I think that Christ offers the feast of himself. And I think she's got it exactly right. Like ultimately the comfort is even the gospel is God. It's Christ. It's the spirit is the gift in us. God himself is the gift. He is the comfort. He is the hope. Um, so just to kind of bring it together, I really do think there's something beautiful if we're going to embody Christian hope together in terms of faith and love. I do think Others can speak to God for us by their faith and their prayers when we cannot speak for ourselves. And I think other saints can, can end up representing God to us when we find hope very elusive. And I do think faith hope, and hope become powerful and healing when they're connected with genuine love.
Christians themselves give and receive love, but it's always ultimately an extension of God's own love, right? Um, Christ really is, as we celebrate the incarnation, it, it, this idea of Emmanuel and God with us, Christ really does become the one who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, but also secured our redemption. He's not just a sympathetic high priest, as wonderful as that is, right? It's kind of like I tell my students sometimes, it's really nice when you have a classmate who sympathizes with you about a Capic test, but it's better if you have a professor named Capic who sympathizes because I can actually do something about it, right? Christ is sympathetic, but he's not just sympathetic. He has power, right? He's got the redeeming, life-giving power. So, Ultimately, to ground our faith, hope, and love is the great promise that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So I'm happy to go in any direction you want to, but that at least gives us some stuff to think about.